Chapter 14 Night Moves Taunus picked out a white wine from the larder's private stock, which the palace cook assured him was the finest vintage the Corliss Vineyards had produced in a hundred years. Still, Urza's apprentice felt more like a spy than a scholar with a jug of wine. As an afterthought, he picked up his Yarrowwood serpent, the one that had impressed Urza years ago. He wound the toy spring, set the latch, and put the coiled wooden snake in his pocket. Off across the city, the midnight bell was tolling. Servants would be clearing the banquet by now, and those revelers not capable of making it back to their quarters would be rolled to a convenient corner and covered with a blanket until morning. Urza and Kayla left arm in arm, their heads bent together in conversation. Mitra had completed one last dance with his men, then bade them return to the encampment. He and Ashai would be staying at the quarters provided in the palace. At the time, Tonos thought that the availability of soft beds and running water had something to do with that decision. After talking to Ashnod, Tonos had stopped drinking the Nabis. However, the other drink being offered was a thick syrupy coffee served in small cups. The mixture turned his stomach slightly and left him feeling nervous. At least Tonos hoped that it was only the coffee and the Nabis that had unsettled his stomach. Tonos paused at the hallway leading to the guest quarters, then changed direction, heading instead for the ornery at the far end of the palace. It was only past midnight. Urza would still be awake and could tell him what to look for in particular when inspecting the metallic beast. The apprentice arrived to discover Kayla quietly backing out and closing the door to the ornery, watching into the workshop as she did so. She gave a small jump when she saw Tano standing there, then raised a finger to her lips. He's resting, she whispered. It is early for him, said Tano quietly. It's been a long day, she said. And a good one for him. Yes, said Tano. He and his brother seem to be getting along. Kayla pushed a loose strand of hair back, and a small smile broke across her face. Yes, that, she said. Among other things, in any event, I don't think you should disturb him for a little while. Tonos nodded, suddenly aware that he was carrying a bottle of white wine with him. Fortunately, Kayla did not say anything about it. Regardless, he shifted the jug slightly behind him and asked, About the, uh, discussion you two had earlier. Kayla shrugged and moved away from the door. We've talked. We had a good talk. And what did he say? Asked Tonos. Kayla hesitated for a moment, then said, He didn't say no. Tonos gave a sage nod. Well, that is a start. A good start, agreed Kayla. Now, I think we have other place to be at the moment. Tonos blushed slightly. Of course the queen had seen the bottle, and made the assumption he had some late night rendezvous. Tomorrow, he would tell her the truth of the matter and the nature of the dragon engine. For the moment, he merely bowed and retreated back toward the guest wing. The guest quarters consisted of a separate wing of the palace of Krug, and Ashnot and her master had been placed on separate floors, each in a huge encampment of suites. A hand-picked group of servants, known for their open ears and shut mouths, had been assigned to the wing, along with a number of loyal guards. The Falaji were allowed to keep their own bodyguards, with the understanding that they too would be under guard. After the second night, Mishra had dismissed his own guards as a sign of his trust in their host. The arrangements were very Krugian in nature. Each offer of beneficence concealed some implicit method of control. Tanos wondered how much of it was Urza's doing and decided that there was little involving his brother's visit that the chief artificer was not aware of. The guards raised their short pikes to let him pass. Tanos knocked, and the unlatched door opened beneath his knock. Ashna was working at the table, fitting wires around an animal skull, which had been affixed to her dark wooden staff. She held up a hand as Tanos entered. One moment, she said and looped a small strand through the skull's nostrils. There. Done. She looked up. There was a curious fire in her eyes that Tonos had seen before. 
He had seen it in Urza's eyes when he was working on a new refinement of an invention, and in the mirror when he himself was helping the chief artificer. Ashnot blinked, and the fire banked for a moment, but now that Taunus had seen it in its full glory, he could still detect it. Just a little project I've been puttering with, she said, setting the staff aside. Taunus looked at the staff and noted that the animal skull fit snugly over the end. Anything you need help with? he offered. Ashnot shook her head. Just a craft to keep my hands busy. Then her eyes lit up. Ah, you brought the wine. I'll get the goblet. We'll do a toast and take the jug with us to the engine. Tana set the wine down on the table and seated himself at a bench. I hope that this is not too late. Not late at all, said Ashot, saluting the other princess with a pair of brass cups, their stems crossed and clenched in her small fist. I'm used to working on Misha's time. He's up early and to bed very, very late. The chief artificer is much the same, said Tanus, pouring the wine. I have learned to catnap. Ashnot took her cup. I never could do that, but that thick coffee they drink in the desert, said Duke, works for me. One cup, and I could stay awake for a day and night. Then I fall into a coma from exhaustion. Tanus rubbed the back of his neck. He had no less than four of the small cups at dinner. Ashnot raised her goblet. A toast to the madmen who are our masters. Tanus blinked. Madmen? Ashnod lowered her cup slightly. To Mishra and Urza? She suggested. To the brother artificers, responded Tanus, and returned the toast. Both took a sip of the wine. Tanus had never cared for the smell or taste of white wine, but after the heavily spiced meal and pungent drinks, it was a godsend. Ashnod took the seat opposite the tawny-haired apprentice. So you don't think our masters are mad? Well, divinely inspired sometimes, said Tanus. But mad? There is a fine line between the two, noted Ashad. Can we say the gods or madness control them? How many times has your Urza suggested something completely irrational, only to be proven correct? Tana shrugged. I always assumed he had a good reason for his actions, even if he did not share it with me. Hmm, said Ashad. I thought it was a tradition that apprentices always complain about their masters. You were a toy maker, I hear. Didn't you complain about the master toy maker then? Well... The master toymaker of Joralin was my uncle, so I never... Said Tanus, then stopped as Ashnod broke into peals of laughter. Ashnod must have read the disappointment in Tanus' face because she quickly cut her chuckling short. You sound like a baby duck, always falling along behind its mother duck. Such loyalty is so sweet. So your first master was a relative, and your new master is... Tanus shrugged. He is Urza. He knows more than anyone else I've ever met. Ashnod looked at Tanus and said in a low voice, God's below. You're serious, aren't you? Tano shrugged again. Sure. Why have a mass, a superior, who doesn't know more than you? But you know things he doesn't, right? Said Ashot, motioning with her now empty cup. Well, yes, said Tano's, pouring the wine for her, and then, as an afterthought, topping off his own goblet. But of the important matters, he knows more than I do. And that's why we stay with them then? They know more than we do? Said Ashnod. In part, said Tanus, leaning back. A small part. I mean, Urza is demanding, and precise and hard to follow sometimes when he's hot on an idea. Fisher's the same way, said Ashnod. And you get the idea that when he explains something to you, it's as if he's reining himself in, choosing simple words and ideas that you can understand, and he expects you to keep up with him. Tanos chuckled now. That's Urza sometimes. You saw the wind chamber in the ordering? 
Urza built it so students could prove their multiplications of the ornithopters would not work, saving him the trouble of explaining it, and then the trouble of building a full working model. Or non-working model, said Ashad, and Tano smiled at that. Like I said earlier at the feast, Misha really envies the sense of place that your brother has. Big palace, school of assistants, regular supplies. She paused for a moment, then added, Beautiful wife. Tanos responded, There are things in Misha's life that Urza envies. There's the dragon engine, of course. He does? said Ashan, looking over a cup. Urza said that? Once you get away from machinery, Urza doesn't say much, replied Tanos. But to understand his moods, his looks, what he talks about, and more importantly, what he doesn't talk about. Ditto for Master Mishra, said Ashad. Or rather, he talks, but he avoids certain subjects, and you can tell what's on his mind by what he doesn't talk about. It appears like a genie in the center of the whirlwind. Right, said Thanos. And Urza feels that Mishra has a great sense of freedom sometimes. Urza feels that he has to be so responsible for everything. And the desert offers freedom. What is so funny? Nothing, said Ashad, stifling a giggle. But it's amusing that the Flaji are currently in the iron grip of a petulant child man. If you think the desert means freedom, you've never met the Kadir. I think Urza would rather be working on artifacts than trying to support a nation, said Thanos. Agreed for Mishra as well, said Ashad, raising her goblet in another toast. It's the love of artifacts that bind them together and probably us to them as well. There's something about getting beneath the skin of a new device. Understanding a new concept, agreed Thanos. Unlocking its inner secrets. Understanding the design philosophy behind it. Feeling its power. Comprehending its purpose, said Thanos, and expanding its abilities. Ashad laughed again, and it was a very relaxed laugh. There are so very few of us, you know. I am one of very few that can talk to Misha and understand him. I feel much the same with Urza, said Thanos, as an afterthought, and with you as well. I won't try to use small words, said Ashad. I'll try to keep up, said Thanos. It's all so difficult, said Ashad. I mean, I feel doubly walled away from everything. First, a powerful woman among the Falaji is an exception, not a rule. And second, being an intelligent being among the desert people is so... Frustrating, suggested Thanos. Exactly. Pour me another. We should see the engine, said Thanos. There's time, she said. Time for everything in the world. Thanos poured and said, I went back to Jorlin a few months ago and was telling my aunts and uncles what I was doing, and they were very polite and appreciative, but I don't think they understand my work at all. At least they were appreciative, said Ashan. I get hostile stares from the Sawari, but it was all the same at Zigon. At first, I thought it was because I was a woman. But then, people were distant because I was smarter than everyone else. It's frustrating to be smart. It separates you from the rest of the populace. It is difficult being different, Thanos admitted. And I bet the continual work keeps you away from your family, your friends, said Ashad. Your wife. I'm, um, not married, said Thanos. It wasn't you I was talking about, said Ashad. But you don't even have a regular young lady, I'll bet. Well, I've been very busy, said Thanos defensively. I rest my case, said Ashad, slapping the tabletop with the fleshy part of her palm. 
just like Mother Duck Urza. You're working for the most powerful man in Yodia, and you don't have the girls flocking to you? Tano shrugged. What about you? Among the Falaji. Ha! She sopped the table again. I really think they have a breeding program to produce such oafs. What about Misra? asked Tanos. Ashnot's chuckle died. Misra, she said, and her eyes grew a bit misted. Early on, yes, but it wasn't as much a relationship as it was a power thing. Sort of, who can control who? And it got old fast. And soon, he was packed to worrying about his precious engines. I don't like playing second fiddle to machinery. Tanos nodded. So there had been a relationship between Misha and his people, but that apparently was in the past. But there was something else in her words that he almost missed. Engines? asked Tanos. Pardon? Ashnot blinked. You said he worries about his engines, said Tanos. Plural. Ashnot pulled up short. There's the dragon engine and the great weight it's pulling. The Falaji call that engine a war machine, but Misha told everyone to not refer it as such during the talks. It might make the Yodians nervous. Mm-hmm, said Tanos, filing away that bit of information for later. Perhaps a tour of the war machine was in order as well. Tanos decided to push a little further. They obviously weren't going to get to the dragon engine until the wine was gone, and perhaps not even then. So does Misha have the power to enforce a peace? If he wants it, yes, said Ashan. The Kadir will whine and moan, but most of the lesser sheiks already back Misha. The tribal chieftains want it all one way or another. Either the glories of war or the bliss of peace, without a middle ground. They're like machines that way. Easy to command and control. So what does Misra truly want? said Tanos. I mean, Urza can help him establishing his own school, if that is his goal. Ashnot shook her head. The Falaji way is not to accept aid or gifts, or charity. It is to take what they want, through trade, or force of arms, or guile, or whatever else is required. The old warlord figured that out, but I don't think Queen Kayla has a clue. Tanos frowned. Misra is not Falaji. He is Argivian, like Urza. Ashad countered. Misha has lived among the Falaji, and come to lead them. He understands their way better than Urza understands the Yodians. No, Misha at his heart is jealous of his brother, and he wants what belongs to him. Tanos thought of his discussion with Kayla earlier in the day. The stone. Ashad nodded. The stone. Misha told me the one he carried was once a larger stone, split in two through his brother's actions. Did Urza tell you the same? Tanos worked his mouth, but no sound came out. He never talked about it, and I've never thought to ask. Baby duck, spat Ashnod. Misha envies his brother, his soft life, and laboratory, and beautiful wife. That's true, but what he really wants is the stone. Is it worth trading away the sword marches for it? asked Tanos. It's worth talking about trading the Sawari marches for it, laughed Ashnod. The Falaji get what they want, by war or guile. And if everything's gone well enough, he's already succeeded. Ashad realized at once that she had said too much and put a hand over her mouth. At last, she said, I shouldn't say anything else about that. Diplomatic secrets and all that. We should go see the dragon engine. Tanos rose, his mind running through the events of the past day, meeting Kayla outside the ornery. The fact she was dotting on Urza at the banquet, where earlier... They were going at it hammer and tongs. The fact that she was insistent Tanos get along and not bother Urza. They both had places to be, she had said. He didn't say no, she had said. I have to go, 
Tono said. Asad rose across from him. We have all night. I think I need to talk to Urza, he said. It's late, even for Urza, said Ashad. Perhaps if I accompanied you... Hopefully not too late, muttered Tanos, and paused by the door. He turned and said, You'll have to stay here, I'm afraid. This has been a very interesting evening, and I hope that I'm wrong about what I am thinking, because I would like to talk to you again later. And with that, he was gone, and the short pikes of the guards were visible as the door swung shut. Ashad shook her head behind him, cradling her brass goblet in one hand. Outside, Tanos was shouting for the guards to find Ambassador Mishra. Said too much, she thought, and too soon. She shook her head and drained the goblet of the last of the wine. Then she went to her jewelry box and removed a pair of earrings. She pried the iridescent stones from them and pulled the skull-headed step back on the table. Slowly, but with practice skill, she started to fit the small power stones into the skull's eyes. Tanos had to shake Urza awake. The chief artificer did not rise when his apprentice burst into the ornery, nor when he called his name. There was an overturned ewer of pungent wine on the floor, but only a thin stream issued from its wide mouth. Similarly, a pair of half-empty goblets left sweating circles on the plant on the work desk. Urza was curled up tightly in a blanket, snoring softly on the day cot he would use when working late or when fighting with Kayla. Tanos shook Urza's shoulder hard, and the artificer was awake in a moment, sitting bolt upright, his eyelids beating rapidly to blink back to sleep. Tanos? What? Is there a fire? What's wrong? Beneath the blanket, Urza was half-dressed, and those clothes he was wearing were bunched together in odd shapes. Tanos looked at Urza and said, Sir, you're stone. Instinctively, Urza's fingers went to his chest, where the stone normally hung. They closed on empty air. Immediately, he raised the hand to touch his neck, but the chain that hung there was missing. The stone! he said. The last dregs of sleep vanished from his eyes, replaced by a hot fire. Where is it? He immediately began tearing up the bedcloths and blankets. Sir, said Tanos, I ran into your wife as she was leaving here. Kayla? said Urza, looking up. Then his face turned stern. Kayla, he said again, a dagger's edge in his voice. Urza became a flurry of action, gathering his banquet regalia into some semblance of order. He grabbed the cape, looking for the loops, then abandoned it entirely, cursing and flinging it across the room. Then he was at the door, bellowing for Tanos to follow. Tanos was taller than Urza and should have been able to catch up to the smaller man easily, but Urza moved as if he was an ornithopter incarnate, gliding through the halls at inhuman speed, passing the guards as if they were no more than ghosts. Tanos himself was stopped by the guards from the guest wing, who informed him that Misha was not in his quarters. A full search of the wing revealed nothing, they added. Would Tanos want them to seal the palace? and sent a runner to the Falaji encampment to determine if Misha had returned there? Tanos hastily agreed, but by the time he concluded this brief conversation, Urza had vanished ahead of him. There were shouts again from the royal quarters as Tanos approached, but this time, both of the voices were male and booming. In addition, this time the door was open, nearly ripped from its hinges, and Tanos thought it opened with a sharp kick, as opposed to a twist of the latch. From the doorway issued an ever-changing spectrum of light. Tanos paused in the doorway, and raised a hand to peer past the light. It issued from Urza's mightstone, and from Misha's gem as well, forming the poles of a magnet, with the light itself acting like metal filings stretched between them. Urza had regained the stone, and now was snarling at his brother across the room. Misha was shouting something else incomprehensible back at him, the warm smile of the Falaji ambassador replaced with a feral snarl. Their words were lost in an angry humming of energy between the stones. Between them, against the far wall, was Caleb Ben Krug. 
Tanos noticed that Urza was not the only one who dressed in a rush. Mishra's clothes were in an equal disarray, and the queen had a sheep wrapped around her torso, clutched at her chest. She saw Tanos, and her face shone with relief. She said something that Tanos could not hear over the throbbing pulses of the battling stones. She took a step forward, toward him. Tanos threw up his hands and shouted for her to stay back. Whatever was happening between the stones, and between the brothers, involved energies he'd neither recognized nor trusted. It could have been Tanos' shout, or his wave of his arms, or it could have been seeing Kayla stepping almost into the energies between the two stones, or it could have been a moment of weakness on Urza's part. But Urza dropped his stone, only for an instant, and he still gripped it in his hand. But he dropped his stone, and it was enough. A violent rainbow of energy spewed forth from Mishra's stone and slammed into Urza. The lanky chief artificer was bodily lifted up by the force of the blow and flung backward against the armory, breaking the doors of that cabinet inward from the impact. Then suddenly, the energy from Mishra's stone went out, and it was as if those within the room were suddenly plunged into the dark, so great was the magnitude of difference in the light. Tanos blinked and started to war where he knew Urza lay. Someone heavy and burly, Misha, he realized later, slammed into him, brushing past him and out the door. Kayla was at Urza's side already, crying as she knelt next to his prostrate form. Urza's eyes were open, but showed only the whites, and his breath was shallow and frothy. Still clenched in his hand was the might stone, a rainbow of colors leaking between his fingers. The temple amulets, said Tanos to Kayla. The ones Urza made. Do you have one here? Perhaps we can... Kayla was nodding, but neither had time to finish his or her thoughts. The stone clenched in Urza's hand began to pulse more, to flash through the spectrum, and into ranges that Tanos felt more than saw. Slowly, Urza's other hand raised and grasped the stone, and his breathing became more regular. His eyes closed, and when they opened again, they were normal. No, they were not normal, Tanos realized. They were filled with emotion, filled with rage. Urza got up. Kayla tried to restrain him, and to tell him that he should rest until the temple priests arrived, but he brought up an arm to ward her off. He brought it up too hard and too fast, for he knocked Kayla with it. She sprawled backward, and Tanos rose with his superior, putting a hand out to Urza's shoulder. Urza batted the offered hand away. Where is he? He snarled. His hair was a tangle, and Urza looked more like a madman than an artificer. Tanos said nothing, but looked at the door. Urza was striding toward it at once. Kayla shouted after him, but he did not look back. Kayla was sobbing now. Her tears strained the sheep gathered in front of her. I tried, she said, then took a deep breath. I tried to do the best thing for my country, Tanos. Tanos could not think of anything to say, but there were more shouts in the hallway. Tanos helped Kayla to her feet. Get something on and bring guards, he said, and was out of the doorway as well. There was a great clamor toward the guest wing, and Tanos thought that Urza found his brother all too quickly. There were shouts and screams and an unearthly flickering of light. He ran for the wing, hoping to prevent any fatalities. Instead of Urza and Mishra, he found Ashnan. She was wielding the staff she had been working on earlier. Now its eyes glow with the eldritch nature of power stones and lightning coursed along the wires that had been spun along the skull. There were several of the guards down along the hallway, most of them clutching their heads and moaning. Ashnan was swinging the staff back and forth, the goldwood skull trailing a shadow of color. She was unharmed as yet, but sweat cascaded down her neck and shoulders. The leader of the guards was preparing a masked attack, but Tanos put a hand on his shoulder and indicated that he wanted to try and disarm the woman first. Tano stepped into full view, hands raised and empty. Ashnot paused for a moment, then barked. There has been a bit of an incident, he said. I'm afraid you're going to have to stay for a while. I'm afraid not, said Ashnot, and brought her staff up, the skull head oozing golden fire. The blow hit Tano square in the stomach, 
and he could feel the pain rush from that center to the extremities. His stomach heaved, and he felt the billowous rise of vomit in his throat. Still, he remained on his feet and grasped at his cloak, trying to find something that would break the effect of the staff's energies. His hand closed around the cold wooden snake that he had in his pocket. He pulled it out, thumbing the winding latch open as he did so. Stars danced in front of his eyes, but he had a good enough idea of Ashnot's position to throw the snake at her. The wooden serpent flew through the air, uncoiling, rattling, and hissing as it did so. Ashnot shouted something and raised her staff higher against this new attack. Taunus was moving the moment that Ashnot spared her attention from him. Charging forward, he tackled her hard in the midsection. The staff pinwheeled away in one direction, while the wooden snake scuttered in the other. Ashnot went down in a heap, and the guards were there immediately. Their short pikes pointed at her. Tonos kept his footing and towered over her, gasping for breath. Ashnot raised her now empty hands in surrender. Well, it turns out the baby duck has teeth, she said, slowly getting to her feet, the guards surrounding her. There are new surprises every day. 